I'd invite you to remain standing as we hear God's word. It comes to us today through the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Philippians. Hear now, Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. This past week, I joined the rest of America at Walmart shopping for Christmas presents. I turned down one aisle and saw one of those huge blow-up nativity scenes you might put in your front yard if you really wanted to outdo your neighbor. Three children played with the nativity scene as their parents debated AA or AAA batteries for a Lego train. Their youngest daughter had put her arms around two of the blow-up wise men and began singing Away in the Manger. Meanwhile, her two other older brothers took the third blow-up wise man and mounted it on top of the blow-up donkey they found near the blow-up stable. And as one brother held the wise man on top of the donkey, the other brother moved the donkey down the aisle. And so coming at me was this huge life-size marshmallow-looking wise man who could topple over at any moment. But before disaster struck, the parents rescued Christmas frantically helping their children rearrange the manger. The dad then huddled the family together, pointed at the nativity scene and said, Quit horsing around. Don't you know we are religious? That is the serious part of Christmas. I stood there on aisle 11, confused. For when the wise men traveled to Bethlehem to witness the Savior's birth, they arrived at the nativity scene, and under the glow of a great star, according to Matthew 2.10, were overwhelmed with joy. But I bet you'd agree that's not the mood you're going to find in Walmart this time of year. It's not the mood you're going to get in the post office either. And it pains me to say, you may not even find that joy in church. Where Dallas Willard once wrote, the church is one of the few places in the world still left where you can act serious and sour all the time and get rewarded for it. <laughs> and the research proves he's right. Recently, a scholar from the University of Virginia conducted a survey across denominational lines. She asked churchgoers of all ages, what positive words or phrases do you associate with church? Alarmingly, the word joy was the 14th ranking answer. In fact, food was number 13. You know, maybe that dad in Walmart was right after all. Maybe all this is just the serious part of Christmas. Or maybe not, says the Apostle Paul. Maybe not. May I suggest to you this morning that Paul's reminder to the church in Philippi was simply this. Get serious about joy. Rejoice in the Lord always, says Paul. And to drive his point home even further... Paul repeats himself, again I say, rejoice. John Ortberg once explained why rejoicing is crucial for discipleship. He said, joy is God's basic character, and God intends for his creation to mirror his joy, making the faith attractive. But all too often, says Ortberg, those outside the faith attribute to God the grim, judgmental, soul-wearing spirit of those who claim to be God's followers. 
Indeed, God is the happiest being in the universe. Jesus himself prayed that his joy may be made complete in us. So why then are you and I still so prone to indulge in the sin of joylessness? I don't believe it's because anybody here doesn't want to be joyful. I seriously doubt anyone woke up this morning wanting to be the Grinch, cuddly as a cactus as the book describes him. No. I think our problem, and I think my problem especially, is that I often look for joy in one of two wrong places. The first wrong place I often look for joy is apart from God. I read an interesting article about this in the San Antonio paper some weeks ago. Here's the headline. Happiness may just take sustained mental workouts. And what some researchers found is that if every night before you go to bed, you think about three positive things that happened to you during the day, and then analyze why those things occurred, over time, if you get into that habit, you will become a more joyful person. Now, I can't dispute this, but it does seem to suggest that you and I can, in fact, create and control our own joy in life. Don't be fooled. There's another name for this. Paul calls it worry. The best definition of worry I've ever heard when the joy in your life is left completely up to you. That's worry. How am I going to make it through Christmas this year without that loved one? How am I going to deal with that strained relationship in my family during the holidays? How's my health going to hang on for another year? Take joy into your own hands, and worry will rob you of joy. And then a second wrong place I know I often look for joy is in my circumstances. I too often live under the illusion that joy will finally come one day in my life whenever my circumstances change. You know, when we get the clean bill of health, when we finally graduate school, when we get that better job, when the pieces of life begin to fall together. The problem with this is that if we put joy on hold until life untangles, we could be holding a long, long time. It's very interesting. Paul's letter to the Philippians speaks to this. Most researchers agree that when Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians, he did so while locked up in one of the dungiest, darkest, first century Roman prisons imaginable. How could Paul write that? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice when Paul's own circumstances literally stunk. I believe it's because Paul knew joy is not the fruit of right circumstances. One of the neat things about my job is that I often get invited into people's lives at peak and valley circumstances. There's a baptism one day, funeral the next. Wedding one day, news of a broken relationship the next. A story of a miraculous healing, someone in the hospital the very next day. Friends, that's life. Wall Street goes up, it goes back down. The team goes undefeated one season, struggles the next. And what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that if your joy is contingent upon those favorable spikes on the graph of life, then your rejoicing is in trouble. So don't look for joy apart from God. Don't look for joy in your circumstances either, says Paul. Instead, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, Paul says, rejoice. How are we going to do it? How are we going to get serious? about rejoicing in the Lord. From this scripture, I think Paul offers us four hints or suggestions. The first is, claim God's victory. You and I know God is going to win. Paul says the Lord is near, Christmas is coming. It'd be like watching the state championship game two weeks from now. You know the story and you know the ending. 
The Savior is born, he proclaims the word, heals the sick, feeds the poor, the forces of evil get upset, nail him to the cross, but it cannot stop God from claiming victory over sin and death. God wins. Now that's better than any psychological somersault you can do before bed or any seven-step plan to positive attitude. Because when you live in light of that victory, the peace of God, says Paul, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Meaning God is on guard, standing sentry watch, so we don't have to be anxiously scanning the horizon for new things to worry about. Instead, as God's people, we're free to rejoice. Because neither death, nor life, nor things present, nor things to come, nor anything else in all creation will ever overturn God's victory. The worst possible thing that can happen to us is God wins. God wins. And that's where our rejoicing begins. First, claim God's victory. And then second, laugh. Laughter is the outward manifestation of rejoicing. For according to Psalm 126, when redemption comes, we will be like those who dream. Our mouths are filled with laughter. There's something very sacred about laughter. The great Protestant theologian Martin Luther once said, if there is no laughter in heaven, I don't want to go. Kierkegaard wrote in his journal, laughter is proof of the cross, proof that joy has in fact overcome the world. But my favorite observation about laughter comes from Reinhold Niebuhr, who said humor is a prelude to faith and laughter is the beginning of prayer. Some weeks ago, I traveled out west of town to visit one of our members in the hospital. And I showed up there at the hospital room, and you may have seen them, one with bed A, a curtain dividing, and then bed B. I walked into her room, and I saw that she was asleep and hooked up to an IV, so I said I was visiting from Alamo Heights United Methodist Church and could I offer her a quick prayer? Well, she didn't respond, so I looked down at my information card and it said that she was in for a uh, kidney complication. So I prayed what I thought was a pretty good prayer and as I left the room, she lifted her head off the pillow and she said, Son, I go to the Lutheran church. I'm here for a hip replacement. The lady you're looking for is right next door. We laughed together and I reminded her once again, my name was Pastor Scott Hare. (laughs) But seriously, do you know what happened next? She said, would you mind praying for me again? I need it. Humor is a prelude to faith. And laughter indeed is the beginning of prayer. For there is nothing, nothing that the evil one hates more than when Christians have faith enough to rejoice in laughter. Claim God's victory. Laugh. And then third, share time with joy carriers. A joy carrier is a person who, as Paul would say, makes his or her own gentleness known to the world. It's a person advanced in the spiritual discipline of rejoicing. A person who has, over time, limited his or her own anxiety to the point at which, by making her gentleness known, can actually reduce the worry around her. Do you have a joy carrier in your life? If so, pride that person and do not let him or her go. Maybe your joy carrier is Jesus Christ. I know when I read the Bible, if I had a party, I'd want to invite him. Because when I read the Bible, I see that so many people just want to be around someone so attractive and gentle. 
someone who, according to Matthew's gospel, got killed for his own popularity. Or maybe your joy carrier is a friend or a co-worker or a family member. Someone who, like Kramer on Seinfeld, can just barge through the door and the joy that fills the room is unavoidable. Mix that same person with a group of complete strangers and you can just watch the walls of anxiety crumble. Or maybe your joy carrier is a child. For Philip Kennison once said in his book on the life and the fruits of the spirit, the cultivation of joy cannot be easily separated from the presence of children. And he went on to argue that it's not so much because children are sinless or more pure than everybody else, just ask the parents of a two-year-old. No, said Kennison, it's because children have yet to develop the worry, cynicism, and suspicion that rob so many adults of joy. Quite frankly, when I'm in Walmart this time of year, I just don't have the time, energy, or perspective to put my arms around two wise men and sing away in the manger as I stare with wonder at the nativity scene. Jesus, a friend, a child, who are your joy carriers, whoever they may be, keep them close to your heart, for in them you get a glimpse of God's character. Claim God's victory. Laugh, share time with those who bring God's joy into the world. And then fourth and finally, know that your rejoicing is just a foretaste. C.S. Lewis once said that all of our wonderful experiences of joy here on earth are not finite. They are just the scent of a flower we have not yet found, an echo of a time we have not yet heard, news from a country we have not yet visited, the foretaste of heaven. Now, I've never been to heaven, but some days ago I tasted it. A wedding at this church scheduled for 5.30 in the afternoon. It was 5 o'clock and I was outside here taking pictures with the bride and groom, men dressed in tuxedos, women gathered with a combined scent that could have rivaled the perfume section at Dillard's. And we smiled as the photographer snapped away. And out of nowhere, a man in blue jeans appeared and it became very evident to us all he was not part of the wedding party. Homeless, disheveled. He pulled me aside and said, Pastor, look at these bumps up and down my arms. I'm dying of AIDS. What can you do for me? And 15 minutes before this wedding, I didn't know what to do. I told him I had no cash. I told him if he came back on Monday or Tuesday, maybe the Hope Center would help him out. But I just couldn't help him right then. And he said, well, I tell you what, can I at least get one of those little triangular sandwiches? Sure enough, the groomsmen who were waiting in the parlor had for them catered a platter of finger sandwiches with deli meat and a little toothpick. So I rolled the dice and escorted that man into the room filled with bow ties and corsages. But before I even had to ask, the best man approached him, took this hurting person to the center of the room, and began piling on a plate these little finger sandwiches. It got contagious. Somebody else in the wedding party went and grabbed a Dr. Pepper from the cooler. And as we left the room and walked down the sidewalk, here was this man with very little. A plate of finger sandwiches, a cold Dr. Pepper, two bags of barbecue potato chips, and a smile that no one, and I mean no one, could have taken off his face. That's church. 
and the joy that filled our hearts. But those finger sandwiches, just hors d'oeuvres, just a foretaste of a much larger wedding feast in a country neither of us had yet been. This Christmas, when we dare to rejoice in the Lord, you and I celebrate a joy that is so very eternal. <laughs>